Well, it was January 6, 1850, and a driving snowstorm forced a 15-year-old young man to duck in and seek shelter in a primitive Methodist church. Now, the storm was so bad that there was only 12 people in the pews, a little better than here, almost. I told the wife coming over, I'm going to laugh if there's 12 people in the pews. 12 people sitting in the pews, and the snowstorm was so bad, the pastor couldn't even make it in. So the young lad took a seat in the back row, and he watched as a simple shoe cobbler, some thought it might have been a tailor, a layman anyway, walked up and rose to the pulpit and proceeded to give the most simple of sermons. Now let me ask you, how many here remember, and if you don't, a lot of people can't point to the exact moment or time, and that's fine, but how many here can remember the exact moment of conversion? Whether it was a verse, or whether it was a song, or uh, a specific service that you went to, can anyone in here remember, like, that verse or that song? You guys remember Pastor Brian, he would, he would uh, it was a song for him, right? When, how many of you guys have heard his testimony? I mean, it was the song that was saying uh, that really was the moment where he was converted. He was broken. The scales fell from his eyes. He was a new man. What was yours? It was at Vacation Bible School. And yes. Wow. 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 And if you don't uh, recall that exact moment, that's fine. The point is not how you were saved, but are you saved now? But it is impactful to remember those things. All right, so this layman, this shoe cobbler, opens his Bible with a snowstorm raging outside and had their congregation turn to Isaiah. 45, verse 22. Let's turn there this evening, just as they did. Isaiah 45, verse 22. Would someone care to read that for us? Isaiah 45, verse 22. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. This was the word that was read which this young man would later recall, this layman could barely pronounce the words correctly as he was reading them. And though this, this layman cobbler appeared to be quite uneducated to this young man, this stand-in preacher singled him out, sitting in the back row, pointed at him and said, Young man, you look very miserable. All you must do is obey my text and look to Christ. Look Look and be saved. And it was at that moment that a young Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers, the greatest Baptist minister in our history, was born again. Called by some the greatest preacher since the Apostle Paul. But in order to understand what brought a troubled young 15-year-old Spurgeon out in a blizzard on a cold Sunday morning, we've got to go back to the beginning. So Charles Haddon Spurgeon was born in June of 1834 in Kelvington, England. It's near Essex. And he was the eldest of 17. Only nine made it past infancy. Well acquainted with grief. 
He was born into a family of preachers. His father and his grandfather were both pastors. And as a young boy, he actually lived with his grandfather for quite a while. His grandfather's house was filled with Puritan writings. John Owen, Richard Baxter, Thomas Watson, and young Spurgeon grew up reading these immense theological works. And most of these works, he would actually have to read by candlelight as well. You see, his grandfather's house was very dark, but not by choice. You see, the, gov- the British government had actually figured out a way, and you're not going to believe this, they'd actually figured out a way to tax the sunlight. To tax the sunlight. They passed a law requiring subjects of the British crown to be taxed based on the number of windows they had in their home. It was presumed that the more windows you had, the wealthier you were. So the good people of England painted their windows black to avoid the taxes. (laughs) Of course, being on a meager minister's salary, Spurgeon's grandfather could, could ill afford the taxes levied on their windows, so what did he do? He painted them black. So Spurgeon had to do most of his reading by candlelight. It was in that dark and in that upstairs attic that a young Spurgeon would come across the most influential book in his life, second only to Scripture. It was in that attic he found an old copy of John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. Who here has read Pilgrim's Progress? All of it? Okay. The original reading can be a little tough. All right. At least read part of it if you can't if you can't get your way through all of it. All right. So Spurgeon would actually later read this book once a year, every year until he died. Very impactful in his life. But as Spurgeon began to read these Puritan works, okay, that we talked about, John Owen, Richard Baxter, Thomas Watson, he began to become deeply troubled. He was downright miserable in his soul. A young Spurgeon, very intelligent, very advanced for his age, he wrestled to the point of anxiety. How could God be just and yet justify me who had been so guilty? How is this possible? How can I have my sins, these grotesque sins, forgiven? If he is just, he cannot pardon me. And isn't that the overarching narrative of all Scripture? The overarching problem that Scripture addresses is how can a God who loves justice not punish sin and still be good? The grand paradox, says R.C. Sproul, that we're saved both by God and from God. Right? So Spurgeon was determined to find the answer. And why he wasn't getting it from his father or his grandfather, who were both ministers, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that, okay? But a young 15-year-old Spurgeon determined to visit every church that his feet could carry him to, no matter the distance or weather, to seek out this answer, how can I be forgiven? Now, that snowy Sunday morning, Spurgeon was actually on his way to another church when the blizzard forced him into that small, primitive Methodist church. And as that layman rose to speak, at once, in a moment of time, the truth of all that he had learned in the pages of the Puritans that he had grappled with in his heart exploded into high-definition color, like it did for you at VBS. 
exploded into high-definition color. Spurgeon now understood that the wisdom of God had ordained a way for the love of God to deliver us from the wrath of God without compromising the justice of God. Meaning Spurgeon understood the gospel. He got it. Later, speaking of this genuine repentance, Spurgeon wrote, Evangelical repentance is repentance of sin as sin, not of this sin or of that, but of the whole mass. We repent of the sin of our nature as well as the sin of our practice. We bemoan sin within us and without us. We repent of sin itself as being an insult to God. And anything short of this is a mere surface repentance and not a repentance which reaches to the bottom of the mischief. Repentance of the evil act and not of the evil heart is like men pumping water out of a leaky vessel but forgetting to stop the leak. Some would dam up the stream but leave the fountain still flowing. They would remove the eruption from the skin, but leave the disease in the flesh. You see, Spurgeon grasped his own depravity. He grasped not just that he had sinned, but that he was a sinner. It's an important distinction. Now, that might sound like bad news, even a harsh view, but it's music to the ears of the redeemed and to every angel in heaven who rejoices at true repentance. Spurgeon said, if I hate sin because of the punishment, I've not repented of sin. I merely regret that God is just. Does that make sense? It was this day of reckoning that was the launch point for all Spurgeon would do. And indeed, it's the launching platform for all who would come in genuine and biblical repentance. And Spurgeon began preaching by the age of 16. 16. By the time he was 17, he was called to be pastor of the church in a town called Waterbeach. Waterbeach was no ordinary, sleepy, English countryside town. It was a foul, hot mess. Waterbeach was known for running illegal alcohol stills, Okay, it was a drawling, drunkard, hooligan town. And after only about a year and a half, the Lord had doubled the congregation at Water Beach. So many anecdotal stories, filling books of men and women being dramatically saved from lives of overt debauchery. It was amazing, incredible. 17 years old. Yeah. Young Spurgeon's oratory abilities and his unusual intelligence began to catch the attention of one of the most famous, historic, influential Protestant churches in all of England called New Park Baptist Church. At only 19 years of age, young Charles was called to pastor this renowned church. Now, it sat 1,200, New Park Baptist Church did. It had dwindled down to 200 under the current leadership. And within the year of Spurgeon being there, you could not get a seat if you were not early. They quickly outgrew that building, then they moved to Exeter Hall, which sat 5,000. Once again, boom, filled to capacity. Spurgeon was now 
20 years old. They outgrew that. They moved into Music Hall, which sat 12,000. 22 years old, not a single seat to be had. Not since the days of George Whitfield, over 100 years earlier, had the good people of London seen crowds like this. They would have had to have heard about these things from their great-grandparents. Nobody alive at this point had seen this kind of pulsating fervor and excitement. This number of people gathered for one purpose, to hear the gospel preached. Not since Whitfield. Spurgeon never attended seminary himself. Never had any sort of formal theological education, yet by the age of 23, he had founded the pastor's college. And this was incredible for this time. The purpose of this being to take fledgling preachers who had demonstrated a calling and a, and a conviction and to equip them for the task of ministry. It was an immense undertaking with incredible fruit, 23 years old. And at that same 23 years old, he preached to over 23,000 in one sitting. That was his largest ever recorded. That's quite a burden at 23 years old. Now, realizing that they needed a permanent location that the church could call home instead of being in a theater, okay, which is understandable, the famous Metropolitan Tabernacle was built, holding 6,000 souls. And Spurgeon took the helm there at only 26 years of age. At 26, he would shepherd what was then the largest Protestant sanctuary in the world. And you can still visit the Metropolitan Tabernacle today in London. It was destroyed and damaged severely a number of times during World War II and whatnot, but it is still there. And it has continued to enjoy a relatively unbroken line of tremendous preachers and Obviously, even with London being the, the evangelical wasteland that it is today, the gospel is still preached every Sunday at the Metropolitan Tabernacle. And that's a testimony. That's wonderful. That brings us to Spurgeon, the man. <laughs> Spurgeon, the man, the prince of preachers, the people's preacher. Steve Lawson wrote, if John Calvin was the greatest theologian the church had known, and Jonathan Edwards was the greatest philosopher, and George Whitfield the greatest evangelist, then Spurgeon was the greatest preacher to occupy one pulpit, which he did for 38 years. Now, the environment, uh, one of Pastor Brian's words, the zeitgeist, all right, of, uh, if you will, under which Spurgeon ministered was 19th century Victorian England, all right? Sunday service, always observed. Scripture, respected, all right? This was Queen Victoria's England, highbrow. The preaching was sophisticated and dry. Ian Murray, some of you might know him, wrote that there was no scarcity of eloquence and culture in the pulpits, but there was a marked absence of the kind of preaching that broke men's hearts. Along comes Spurgeon, a theological scrapper. He was a bomb thrower from the other side of the tracks, really, is what he was. He preached with fire, with passion, with intelligence, and the common man could not get enough of him. 
They loved him. Like no preacher before him, Spurgeon held up the doctrines of grace in one hand and a red-hot drive for evangelism in the other, and he brought them together, and the results were explosive, absolutely explosive. Spurgeon understood that if all you have is Reformed doctrine, you're going to end up with a bunch of stoic, frozen, chosen bookworms. That if all you have is evangelism, there'll be no depth to your evangelism, nor can there be. Spurgeon knew it was glorious truths contained in the doctrines of grace that offered any hope for our evangelistic effort. It was Spurgeon's theological depth and delivery that so impacted the world. To understand this man, we must understand the theology that drove him, that animated him. Not to step on anyone's toes here, but Spurgeon was a staunch Calvinist. (laughs) That's a title he proudly gave himself. Unfortunately, there are many today who have attached a lot of baggage to that term and have thus caused others to avoid using the term. Yet Spurgeon was so thoroughly biblical in his approach to Scripture, he said, I don't believe a single thing because Calvin taught it, but because I found his teaching in the Word of God. He said, God gave me this great book to preach from, and if he has put anything in it you think is not fit, go and complain to him. Not me, just the messenger. If you could not show Spurgeon chapter and verse, he was not interested. He was held captive to the word. He was gloriously narrow-minded. After all, it is a narrow way. Spurgeon said the old truth that Calvin preached, that Augustine preached, that Paul preached, is the truth that I must preach today or else be false to my conscience and my God. I cannot shape the truth. I know of no such thing as paring off the rough edges of a doctrine. John Knox's gospel is my gospel. That which thundered through Scotland must thunder through England again. Spurgeon preached Christ and Christ crucified. That's what he did. This singular focus in his preaching was the fuel of his greatness. It was the blessing of God on a man's ministry who pointed to Christ alone. If you're going to live biblically, if you're going to preach biblically, there will always be a price. That's why so many pastors look to Spurgeon for such encouragement. If you're going to preach biblically, you're going to pay a price. Some greater than others, but as, as Pastor Brian and Pastor Jonathan will tell you, a pound of flesh will always be exacted. And Spurgeon boldly held to all five doctrines of grace without shame, come what may. And there was a lot of gnashing of teeth. And while this is not a lesson on the doctrines of grace or any position, uh, they were so vital, so key to understanding Spurgeon and the fire that consumed him that to, to preach the life of Charles Spurgeon without examining his theology would be an, an NFL game without a football. Uh, it just can't be done. Uh, so his views on these areas have to be given some attention if we're going to understand him properly. As we said, Spurgeon was a theological bomb thrower. Always biblical, but always controversial. And he called the men of his day molluscus. And total kudos to no one in here who needs to look that up. I had to look it up. Molluscus, soft. 
<laughs> he called the men of his day soft. I shudder to think what he would think of our world today, but nevertheless, uh, his congregation were systematically taught the doctrines of grace. And he said to withhold this teaching from his people, he called a, dis- a wretched display of popery. We don't use the word popery a lot anymore, um, but it really is talking about Roman Catholicism. It's talking about Rome. Okay? <clears throat> it was Rome that withheld doctrine and teaching from the masses, thinking they were too ignorant or too pedestrian to understand. Or worse yet, they would disagree and take their offerings with them. And Spurgeon said, Long ago I ceased to count heads. Truth is usually in the minority in this evil world. I thank God. What I believe, I shall believe, even if I believe it alone. Take that with you and put that one in your back pocket. Uh, Because though in this instance they were fighting uh, and speaking against Rome and popery, we we have our own popery today uh, that we all battle, uh, whether in our workplace or in our spiritual lives. He believed that to hold back, Spurgeon believed, to hold back, to soften difficult doctrines was to fashion your ministry after Rome. Spurgeon had abandoned the treacherous path of being a man-pleaser in ministry. He joined Paul when he wrote to the Galatians, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. He preached biblical doctrine, come what may. Spurgeon was famous for his deep teaching on the true state of man, our true fallen condition, how this, how this condition affects our ability to, to process truth uh, and to turn to Christ. And concerning the state, Spurgeon said, we declare on scriptural authority that the human will is so desperately set on mischief and so depraved, so inclined to everything that is evil and so disinclined to everything that is good, that without the powerful and supernatural, irresistible influence of the Holy Spirit, no human will ever be constrained towards Christ. Now, these teachings did not have Spurgeon making any friends through soothing speech or through tickling of ears. He didn't. The elite of the Baptist Union would come to loathe Spurgeon. His wretched teaching, his uncompromising stance towards doctrine. And though variants of Reformed theology were ensconced in in every major creed held in doctrine, even by the Church of England herself, it was not preached. And they loathed those who did so. One of my favorite quotes from Spurgeon, and recall that he's probably the most quotable preacher since biblical times concerning the true state of man and this is one of my favorites it really is if any man thinks ill of you do not be angry with him for you are worse than he thinks you to be now that sounds harsh but the truth that undergirds that is the path of humility that leads to salvation and positionally keeps someone in place to receive that instruction from the word, to be more like our Savior. It's a beautiful thing to say. Spurgeon said, when you feel yourself to be utterly unworthy, you've hit the truth. You've hit the truth. 
He, looked at, he took these great theological truths and so burned them into the hearts of his congregation through the use of very plain speech. Very plain speech. And it was also this ability to put these great truths into pithy barn burners, all right, that so infuriated his detractors. And there were many. He spoke the common man's language. They could understand. Not highbrow Victorian. Oh, no. And he packed these beautiful theological truths into these, and he would just lob them in. Mm. I'll tell you, you may feel like you have an enemy or two in this world, but how many of you have actually had full-page ads taken out to express their displeasure of you? Probably no one in here, I would imagine. So, you have one up on Spurgeon. Mm-hmm. Oh, boy. One exchange highlighted his ability to really leave his detractors speechless. It said, some say, don't get nervous here, guys. Some say, it is unfair for God to choose some and leave others. Now, I will ask you one question. Is there any of you here who wishes to be holy? Who wishes to be regenerate, to leave off sin and walk in holiness? Yes, there is, says someone. I do. Then God has elected you. But another says, no, I don't. I don't want to be holy. I don't want to give up my lust and my vices. Why then should you grumble then that God has not elected you? For if you were elected, you would not like it. According to your own confession, you wouldn't like it anyway. It reminded me of a quote that Pastor Brian used from J.C. Ryle. It's wonderful. I have it on my phone. I read it often. It says, if worship does not capture your attention at present, what makes you think it will thrill you in some heavenly future? If ungodliness is your delight here on earth, what will please you in heaven where all is clean and pure? You would not be happy there if you are not holy here. You would not be happy there if you are not holy here. In this way, Spurgeon reminded me a lot of Luther. He had a sharp wit. He was ragingly sarcastic in his writings. Uh, if you've ever read Luther, Luther held nothing back. Uh, extremely sarcastic. It is funny that some of our greatest leaders and greatest preachers were just eminently sarcastic. Uh, as I asked the Lord to, like, get that off of me. Uh, yes, they wanted, you know, they wanted to hate him, but they could never refute him. Spurgeon was hated by both ends of the spectrum. He really was. He was loathed. He was loathed by the hyper-Calvinists, those who misunderstood and misapplied the doctrines of grace. Hyper-Calvinism, it undermines evangelism and it twists the gospel message. Yet Spurgeon was an evangelist of the highest order. He said, to win a soul is more glorious achievement than to be crowned in the arena of theological controversy. So the hyper-Calvinists rejected him. And on the other side, the majority of the preachers in London, who, though their very creeds were distinctly reformed, they'd abandoned these doctrines. And they certainly did not appreciate some preacher bringing that dusty book of doctrine back off the shelf. They did not appreciate this at all. And eventually, God's hand on Spurgeon's ministry catapulted it to levels I'm sure he never imagined. He never imagined. But you know what he did? He worried and he concerned himself with his depth 
and he let God take care of the breath. John MacArthur said that recently, and I thought that was wonderful. As a sound preacher, that we take care of our depth and let God take care of the breath, whatever that happens to be. Hmm. Finally, his sermons were famously put into what was called the penny pulpit. Now, his sermons from the Sunday previous, they would be typed and printed and sold on the street corners of London for one penny. And not just in London, though. Spurgeon's sermons enjoyed global, worldwide distribution. There are countless reports of people from Australia and Africa translating his sermons, and they would often enjoy full-page features in American newspapers. Can you imagine that today? Just what would this be? 130 years ago, Spurgeon's sermons, full page in the USA Today. Wouldn't be in the USA Today, but you know what I mean. Pretty amazing. Pretty amazing. But what makes Spurgeon great, as it were? What makes his legacy endure today? Someone can preach a great sermon from a position of strength and health and surety, and that's a noble thing. But what about a preacher who preaches out of great adversity, who preaches in the midst of tremendous physical illness and of constant attack in his life? While his sermons are remarkable and his theological treaties, the likes will never be replicated, it's the backstory that makes them remarkable. Spurgeon was a man who suffered. He suffered. Physically, he suffered from gout, rheumatism, Bright's disease, which basically means his kidneys were failing. All of these affected Charles greatly. But what many don't know about the Prince of Preachers is that he suffered from horrific and debilitating depression. Spurgeon owned more than 30 books on mental health. He read about depression, wrote about depression. He suffered from depression. Spurgeon's writings contain numerous references to this unrelenting battle. He often called himself a prisoner, or a, he called it a prophet in rough clothing. And he would weep without knowing why. If anyone here suffered about, with that kind of stuff, you'll, you'll know what I'm talking about. He would weep without knowing why. Well, Spurgeon was a man's man, yet when it came to his depression, he said, I pity a dog who has to suffer what I have. And not only did Charles suffer immensely, but his wife, Susanna, she suffered under equal pain. She suffered severe, debilitating Issues of gynecology. Now, we know how hard that is. If we as a man, we suffer something, we bear up underneath it. But we crumble twice as fast when it's our spouse, when it's our wife, right? That's, we, we wear that almost twice as much as we wear ourselves. So Susanna's condition can't be overlooked because that played a huge part. That was a huge weight on Charles as well. Ray Rhodes, who wrote the book Susie on Charles Spurgeon's wife, which is a tremendous read. I, I commend it to any of you. Uh, she bore up under tremendous things. He wrote this about her. Her pain around this difficult season caused episodes during which she was not able to lift 
hand or head. Even when her pain subsided, it was rare that she could travel even a mile from home without suffering for days after. Though like her husband, there was no evidence that she was a complainer, nor did she blame God for her sufferings. In fact, she wrote, if we would trust him for the keeping, if we would trust him for the keeping, as we do for the saving, our lives would be far holier and happier than they are. If he can save us, he can keep us. Exercise that equal faith of glory in the future and present help, a present help. She was a remarkable woman. No lesser a woman of such character, such fortitude, such backbone could have withstood what the Spurgeons went through physically, mentally, spiritually. It was incredibly difficult. While Spurgeon was in his worst physical condition, toward the last few years of his life would come the greatest controversy that some say literally killed him. This controversy was known as the downgrade. Who's heard of that? Yeah, oh, that doesn't count. <laughs> the downgrade. Well, give you a quick overview. The year was 1887, and there was a Christian magazine called The Sword and Trowel. And three anonymous letters were sent into, the ma- into this magazine warning of doctrinal slippage or a downhill slope. Hence the name, the downgrade. And while these three anonymous letters, who actually we found out later were penned by one of Spurgeon's close friends, produced some buzz, it wasn't until Spurgeon entered the arena that it exploded in controversy. Spurgeon wrote a six-page, scorched-earth editorial entitled Another Word on the Downgrade. Now, given Spurgeon's horrendous health at the time, it was likely he was ill-equipped for the knockdown drag-out that was coming. This six-page article was a clarion call to not abandon the faith. I can describe the article, but it's best to read you a few excerpts to give you a flavor. Let's see what it takes to get the masses ready to string you up. Let's see what it takes. Spurgeon writes in The Sword and Trowel, No lover of the gospel can conceal conceal from himself the fact that the days are evil. We are willing to make a large discount for our apprehensions on the score of natural timidity, the caution of age, and the weakness produced by pain. But yet our solemn conviction is that things are much worse in many churches than they seem to be and are rapidly trending downward. Read those newspapers which represent the broad school of dissent and ask, how much farther could they go? What doctrine remains to be abandoned? What other truth to be the object of contempt? A new religion has been initiated, which is no more Christianity than chalk is cheese. And this religion, being destitute of moral honesty, palms itself off as the old faith with slight improvements, and on this plea usurps pulpits which were erected for gospel preaching. The atonement is scouted. The inspiration of Scripture is derided. The Holy Spirit, listen to this, is degraded into an influence. Hmm. The punishment of sin is turned into fiction, 
and the resurrection into a myth, and yet these enemies of our faith expect us to call them brethren and maintain a confederacy with them. (laughs) Fire, scorched earth. He continues, the case is mournful. Certain ministers are making infidels. Avowed atheists are not a tenth as dangerous as those preachers who scatter doubt and stab at faith. Germany was made unbelieving by her preachers. And England is following in her tracks. So Spurgeon went on to say that believers cannot align or be in practicing ministry with those who have compromised their faith and set aside fidelity to correct doctrine. That's what it was. That's what it was. Yet you can imagine that this went over like a lead balloon. Not just a lead balloon, but a lead balloon that simultaneously explodes on impact. Because Spurgeon wasn't just anybody. He was the man. As far as the Baptist Union was concerned, if they had a pope, it would have been Charles Spurgeon. Okay? Spurgeon had always been attacked by those outside, but now he would be savaged by those from within. And that's always more painful, isn't it? That's always more painful. The Baptist Union started a whisper campaign against him that his physical maladies had driven him mad. Graduates of Spurgeon's pastor's college turned on him in droves. These were men he mentored. He mentored them personally. Spurgeon wrote two more articles trying to persuade and convict, but to no avail. So finally, on October 28, 1887, Spurgeon wrote a letter to the General Secretary of the Baptist Union, Samuel Harris Booth, to announce that he was withdrawing the largest Baptist church in England from the Baptist Union. This was an earthquake across England. Shortly after, the Baptist Union Council voted to accept his withdrawal and then to add insult to injury, this Council of 100. Now, these are 100 guys who have exemplified themselves, who have been promoted to the Baptist Union. These are, well, they kind of be like our messengers that, that we would send. These are men who were well thought of and doctrinally sound in their local congregation. That's who these men were. That's who these members were. A hundred me- this was a council of nearly 100 members. They actually voted to censure Spurgeon. Only five men of the 100 supported the greatest preacher to grace England's shore. That's it. The union would later, this Baptist union would later produce a, a watered-down doctrine that was pure compromise. Pure compromise. And to make matters worse, Spurgeon's own brother seconded the motion for approval. That's an awkward Thanksgiving. That's all I'm saying. So the Baptist Union passed this new statement, this new doctrinal statement of faith, as it were, by a vote of 2,000 to 7. It reminds me of Spurgeon's earlier quote that we read. Truth is usually in the minority in this evil world. And I thank God what I believe I shall believe even if I believe it alone. This controversy cost Spurgeon dearly. Lifelong friendships were dashed. Family members turned their back on him. An illustrious reputation was left in shatters, at least from the world's perspective and the world's standard. His reputation was gone. 
Yet as one author put it, Spurgeon knew to stay in that organization was tantamount to theological treason. Spurgeon was right. The Baptist Union never recovered, and its doctrinal downgrade that Spurgeon warned against was the death nail to a great organization. That's certainly a timely lesson for us today. Spurgeon was a person who felt deeply. He felt deeply. He cared so immensely for the flock of God. He said, I have suffered enough for one lifetime from those I have lived to serve. Through a broken heart and a broken body, the Lord took Charles Haddon Spurgeon home. He died in 1892 at age 57. If you recall, Whitfield died at 56, so he beat him by a year. These men worked themselves into the ground for the gospel. Spurgeon had 63 volumes of sermons that ultimately were published. This is obviously not an exhaustive collection, but basically what the compilers did was they selected 50 of the best sermons from each year and compiled them, a total of over 4,000 sermons. Do you know Spurgeon had a mentor? A mentor that he only knew through reading and study. He studied a great man of the past. And that mentor was George Whitfield. Spurgeon said of Whitfield, there is no end to the interest that attaches to such a man as George Whitfield. Often as I have read his life, we should be reading biographies, not autobiographies, guys. Often as I have read his life, I am conscious of a distinct quickening whenever I turn to it. He lived. Other men seem only to be half alive, but Whitfield was all life, fire, wing, and force. My own model, if I may have such a thing in due subordination to my Lord, is George Whitfield. But with unequal footsteps must I follow his glorious track. See, Spurgeon read and studied those who had gone before him, just as we're doing tonight. And I pray to great effect. We've been given a tremendous example in history and in our own fellowship as well. We're blessed to have that. Contrary to his wishes, his supporters funded a large burial tomb in Norwood Cemetery. And placed in the front of it is a marble Bible. It's open to 2 Timothy 4, verse 7. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. And so we did. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for servants like Charles Spurgeon. We thank you for his example to us. We thank you that his work endures to this day. Lord, we know that heaven will be filled with people whose names we've never heard, who have quietly served and loved their congregations and served and loved one another. We ask, Lord, that you help us all to run well this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.